going to begin by stealing uh, a witticism from Mr. Zuckerman. Um, I don't imagine there are many seniors here because they're working against time. <laughs> but those that are here, on the spur of the moment, I think I will dedicate this lecture to them. They're true heroes. Uh, I'll, as you know, be lecturing next week also. And uh, the two parts of the lecture are, uh, uh, the two par uh, parts of the series are divided in this way. In the first part, I will consider uh, three philosophers and their views of time. In the second part, I will tell what I think myself. <laughs> the lectures both are entitled Against Time. That time has no being and no power. That the past is most to be cherished by those who have least taste for bygones. That our own temporality is the work of the imagination. It was to articulate and reason permitting to confirm my sense of the truth in these propositions that I undertook the following inquiry. I have no doubt that to hold these opinions, if only they can be held with good cause, is of the greatest consequence for the freedom and the substance of human life. But such good cause can come only from an attempt to answer the question, what is time? Given this purpose, the first question is how to begin. The most immediate way would seem to be through the ordinary language of time, through listening to what everyday speech says. For instance, my watch tells the time. I can give you the time. Do you have the time to give me some time? I have no time, and yet at the same time, I'm wasting my time while having the time of my life. <laughs> time is money, and the times are bad. At this point of time, he has no comment, but time will tell. Time heals wounds, and time deteriorates conditions. Time, the time is coming, the time is now, the time is past. We live in time and through times, are on time, race against time, kill time, donate time, are true to the end of time, and imagine once upon the time. <laughs> but I assure you, and we can talk about this more in the question period, that it is hopeless to try to extract from ordinary speech about time what it might be. The reason is precisely that our speech about time is invariably poetic in the derogatory sense of that word, namely meaning merely metaphorical. So next we might consider turning to the signs of nature for help concerning the nature of time. In view of the fact that time is the basic independent variable of all the, phys uh, of all the physics that is accessible to us laymen. Indeed, strong theories of time have been propounded by reflective physicists and philosophers of physics. At the very beginning of the science of dynamics stands the most extreme theory of the reality of time, Newton's self-subsisting, equably flowing, absolute world time, and its equally extreme opponent, Leibniz's relative time, which is a mere order of phenomenal succession. Newton's theory of an absolute temporal flux may well be integral to the purposes of the Principium, but it does not seem to be operational within its physics. It is a theological rather than a physical requirement. In contrast, the plain statement of the most minimal theory is fairly recent, namely Einstein's wholly instrumental definition of local time as and I quote, the position of the small hand of my watch, unquote. 
Although it may seem strange at first that after two and a half millennia of arduous exploration, the outcome should be that time is what the clock tells, one soon sees that this definition is the cleanest and clearest reflection on time that a physicist can give. For physics, time must be positive. That is to say, the name of a quantitatively defined observation. Consequently, there is an enormous and intellectually most acute literature about the philosophical implications of time and nature, or more accurately, in the science of nature. Three branches of physics are seen to be especially amenable to philosophical exploitation, namely thermodynamics, because it seems to have implications about the forward motion, that is, the so-called arrow of time, and its irreversibility, relativity theory, because it appears to have exploded the common sen sense position of universal, uh, the common sense notion of universal time, or the simultaneity of the present moment throughout space, and quantum theory, because it throws in doubt the continuity of time. But welcome as such discussions are, because they are bent on interpreting with ingenuity and vigor the discoveries of physics, which must be considered, they help only incidentally and negatively with the question, what is time? For they seem invariably to mean by time a privileged process or motion, either a macro motion or an atomic vibration, whose temporality, if it has one at all, is itself left unexplained, just as Einstein demands. So therefore, from the consideration of physics or the philosophy of physics, no answer to the question, what is time, can be derived. To try yet a third approach. Sometimes a matter like time arouses wonder and perplexity all by itself, while sometimes the world's preoccupation with it excites curiosity and concern. In the case of time, these two factors seem to coincide. There is certainly plenty of external evidence for our world's pervasive fascination with time. In the decades close to us, there is no getting away from observations to the effect that the rate of change of the human environment has increased stupendously. And this increase is usually expressed as a speeding up of time itself. Innovation is the incantatory term which we continually utter to keep time from outrunning us. Complementing this general sense of the urgencies of our time, there's also a flood of new scientific work on time. For example, intriguing biological experiments on the temporal rhythms of animals and jet setters, psychological studies of time perception and estimation, sociological accounts of time management in different cultures. But there had been a heightened sense of time's power throughout the past hundred years. There is the common feeling that the times are informed by a super-individual spirit, which it is wise to disarm by anticipation and disreputable to attempt to oppose. There is the widespread sense that time is coming to a head, either in an earthly paradise or in a man-made apocalypse. There is a perception of the vitality of time as contrasted with the externality and deadness of space, and also of the interdependence of both time and space. There's even the claim that the philosophical situation of our time forces us to view the very ground of being itself as temporal. Although it seems to me that cataloging the elements and sources of what everyone is saying is a dry and dubious business, 
I cannot help speculating on how time, having been dethroned from its mythical majesty by Aristotle, as we will see, returned as the insidious demon of modernity. Four causes seem to me discernible, to which the temporal preoccupation of late modernity is referable. Their analysis is familiar to a point where it must seem hackneyed. Nonetheless, let me re recapitulate. First and fundamental is the secular residue of Christianity. Christian time has a beginning, an end, and an inter internal epoch, namely the creation, the final judgment, and the birth of God as man. Our otherwise largely apostate world retains a sense of impending doom in a self-made catastrophe. That sense of doom long antecedes the concrete fear of nuclear annihilation of this decade, and ultimately of coming salvation in the divinization of mankind or the return to an original creaturely equality in some terrestrial paradise. Second is the simple fact that we come late in history. We have behind us two minutely documented classical civilizations, Greece and Rome, each uniquely brilliant and each irrevocably bygone. And we have a very peculiar relation to these two civilizations. For modernity begins with a self-conscious systematic transformation of the classical categories of thought and conduct. Hence, the shape of modern thought is quite unintelligible without reference to its ancient origins. At the same time, we seem to have every warrant for forgetting them and of thinking of them and for thinking of them as superseded, since we have a more powerful knowledge of nature and are in the truly modern countries better governed than were our intellectual ancestors. Such forgetfulness, however, induces a vague feeling of discontinuity and strange contradiction in terms of chronic sense of the newness of our situation. A third factor and the incomparable importance of time in the last century is the temporal effect that goes with the sheer massiveness of modernity. It's human numbers, organizations, wars, crimes, and instruments of pleasure. The motion of magnitude so far beyond human perspective appears to be attributable to an agency divine and yet and superhuman. We call it time and see its effect as inevitable. Finally, and most to my purpose, is the special modern propensity for a kind of psychological introspection, which in contrast to philosophical self-knowledge, consists of a prolonged pursuit of intimate affective subtleties. It appears to me to stem from two sources, coincidentally. First, the secularization of that anxious Christian interest in the state of one's soul, which motivates Augustine's confessions. And secondly, from the sophisticated reaction against the original view of modern subjectivity as transparently rational, namely that reaction which is called romanticism. Naturally, such introspection, for which this century is particularly uh, to which, uh, apt, really, it is an ingenious kind of musing, is especially rich in observations about the sense of time and ready to luxuriate in the aroma of temporality. Those, those of us who, like myself, were born in the first third of this century, participate in these affects by birthright, for it was then that feelings of decadence 
climax by the First World War, which realized all the worst forebodings and indeed closed an era in civilization, worked this temporal sensibility into an acute state, which was the psychological counterpart of the general interest in the objective nature of time. Let me recall just two of the many experiences of temporality under headings of my own invention, namely routine and skewing. By routine, I mean the double mirror in which the daily time schedule is endlessly reflected, so that it is hard to say whether there is an infinity of images or just one. Everyone who works in the modern mode, according to a non-seasonal repeating schedule, has some sense of the enigma of the busy round. How are such days additive? What is the difference between the first forgotten time of hastening up those particular and very familiar brownstone stairs and the unrecalled tens thousands other times. The memory is curiously abstractive about the routines of life. It remembers them as one event modified by the mere fact of multitude. For anyone who loves his daily duties, the front of time, the present, may well be absorbingly exhilarating. But in turning round to face the past, a puzzle stares back. There has certainly been living, but has there been a life? That is to me the mystery of routine. The second item in time sensibility is what I call skewing. Skewing is my term for the overpowering sense that space and time are at cross purposes. I've been in Athens, at a place where my path crossed that of Socrates, not conjecturally, but precisely, since archaeology, that quintessentially modern discipline, has fixed the exact location, for instance, of the court where he was tried. Nor was I on the spot and plain coordinates only, for again archaeology, which brings back the past by digging down, had laid bare the level of his time. I was then correctly located in all three spatial dimensions. I was in the right place, but at the wrong time. That melancholy sense of the irreparable loss of what we have never had that temporal nostalgia is many times intensified when no space intervenes to compound the temporal distance, when here and now are directly at odds. <coughs> this irremediable skewedness of space and time arouses many ruminations. Imagine, for instance, the common inverse of the case just stated. Being contemporaneous, that is, even precisely simultaneous with another cherished human being, but apart in space. How do the cases differ? No doubt precisely by the fact that the latter appears remediable. By investing available time in transportation, I can come again into the other's presence. Incidentally, itself, the strangest business, this going into and out of another's now. But is being in the same place at the same time so sure a remedy for remoteness? One writer on time illustrates the common claim that the feature which most distinguishes the present from the past is vividness by referring to his colleague X, who is, he asserts, more acutely there than Plato. One has but to read it to doubt it. <laughs> Such diverse musings provide the strongest motive and the richest material 
for the inquiry into time, but not yet a clear direction. What is left in the end is the way through the philosophers, whose proper business it is, after all, to ask boldly and directly what time itself is. I shall, therefore, at rather breakneck speed, run through three philosophical theories of time, that of Aristotle, of Augustine, and of Kant. These are, it seems to me, both most original and most fundamental, and therefore the most helpful to my own inquiry. First, then, Aristotle. The heading is time as the number of motion. Time, chronos, is endowed among the Greeks with vividly various shapes and widely diverse powers. He is monster, god, heaven itself, all-seeing, healing, and all-destroying. Time's attributes are evidently fluid, but he is never less than a most potent being. In the fourth book of the physics, the first extensive thematic treatment of time that we know of, Aristotle suddenly and drastically reduces it to the lowest possible status. This epoch-making triumph of thinking over myth-making has not prevailed. Indeed, the dethroned God has been re-insinuated into the world as God himself by Aristotle's modern counterpart, Hegel. Nonetheless, it seems to me determinative. Aristotle begins with the suspicion that time is as he says, either wholly not, or scarcely, or obscurely. For many perplexities arise if being is ascribed to time, chief of which is this, that some of it is gone and is not anymore, some of it is to come and is not yet, while the now is no part of time at all. He resolves the difficulty like this. Time is a mere affection or aspect of motion. He says, time is the number of motion with respect to before and after. The Loeb translators comment that Aristotle, say, as they say, enters into no prof profound metaphysical speculation as to its essential nature. But the profundity of his speculation, it seems to me, lies precisely in his showing that it has no essential nature. Not only is time a mere aspect of motion, it is not even a necessary aspect. Since, and this should not seem odd, not all motions are temporal. Two kinds of motion, at least, are prior to time. They are the motions of the two limits of the natural world, so to speak. And they are timeless because they are the source and principle of time. The first is the ultimate primary rotational motion of the heavens. The second is the motion of the soul that apprehends time. Let me explain. Motion has a quantitative aspect. We may call it extension. <coughs> Motion derives its sequential character of before and after from its being a magnitude, a property in the motion, but separable from it in thought. Locomotion, Aristotle argues, is prior in all ways to changes, to other changes, for it initiates them and it remains when they have been completed. Again, of locomotion, rotary motion alone is continuous in all senses. It has no beginning, and it does not end through having completed its process, nor does it abruptly double back on itself. It is able to be regular, smooth, uninterrupted, 
and eternal. It is absolutely first. The first heavenly sphere is the uniquely perfect embodiment of such rotary motion. It comes as close to being at rest as a mobile can be. For every point in a circular motion being equally a beginning, middle, and end, it has, in a sense, no before and after. It is in motion, but not toward an end. Its movement is rather a steady state, which imitates in its regularity the pure activity of completely fulfilled being, namely God. This is the motion which is the cause of all other inner-worldly motions, and so of time. Beyond the heavens, there is no time, says Aristotle. The continuity of time and the sense of endlessness and uninterruptedness is therefore derived from that of the ultimate motion. Because of it, time is one and the same throughout the world. The discontinuous motions of the terrestrial world, which come to an end with the reaching of their goal, are all set into continuous cosmic time. As the heavens are the source of temporal continuity, so they provide its measure, for rotation is the best unit of time being easiest to count. For continuous quantity must have a unit measure in order to be countable. The unit measure of time in the terrestrial world of becoming are provided by the sun's oblique motion along the ecliptic. Just as the movement of the whole heavens is responsible for the continuity of motion and time, so the sun, whom Aristotle calls the generator, by its approaches and withdrawals causes each life to have its span. He says, every life and time is measured by a period, no, though not the same for all. For some the measure is a year, for some a greater, and for others a lesser period. Hence the period or cycle is a natural time unit. Time then belongs most strictly speaking only to the sublunar world of change, of becoming, becoming and of linearly advancing motion in which before and after are distinguishable. Such motion, defined in the third book of the physics, is to be understood through Aristotle's two fundamental terms, potentiality or capability for being, dynamis, and actuality or being at work, energia, also entelechia, that is to say fulfillment. Motion is the fulfillment of a being's capability. It is the being's actual exercise of its potentiality for being what it was meant to be, for achieving its form. Each such motion is a unity, being governed by its own end and ceasing when that has been fulfilled. Its temporality is just the measured course of this activity of approaching full being. For very fine, fuller treatment of Aristotle's definition of motion, I should refer you to Mr. Joe Sachs's article in the College Journal for January 1976. Time, then, is but the number of motion, the objective number, the number which is counted. Motion is potentially innumerable, but it has an actual number or becomes temporal only when it is actually counted. It is the soul that counts motion. How? By noting change, of course. When we have no awareness of change as during sleep, we say that no time has passed, for we fit the earlier directly onto the later now. If time is thought of on the analogy of a continuous directed line whose parts have an intrinsic order, the now corresponds to a Euclidean point, namely a point which is not a constituent element of a line, but merely lies upon it. You remember the fourth definition of Euclid's elements. 
For the now, Aristotle is at pains to show is not a part of time, but its very continuity itself. At once the pivotal link of before and after and the possibility of temporal division. The now divides time everywhere potentially, but actually only when a cut is made. How is that temple cut made? As time follows motion, so the now follows the moving thing. It is by the now alighting on an object that we know before and after in motion. For, as Aristotle says, the now is the most apprehensible thing. We conclude that the now is presentness of perception. A now is to be as a presence of perception. Is presentness of perception of a moving thing, and that the cut in time is made by the act of perceptual attention to a moving object. Aristotle says, to perceive is necessarily a this and a where and a now. But how can there be perception of this point now? If perception is the activity of the faculty of sensation, it is like all actuality, not in time. What is perceived in the soul's now is appropriately the corresponding atemporal actuality of the object. That is, the soul perceives the form, the actuality, through the sensing of the shape. How then can the soul perceive the partless, knife-edge, point-like now of the mobile's temporal extension? Aristotle does not say. It is this difficulty which drives later philosophers into making time into the soul, into taking time into the soul, so that the now becomes identical with its noting of motion. When the soul has pronounced now twice, namely before and after, we say that a certain time has passed. Since time is that by which motion has number, it must be possible to count the stretch between the termini, which means bringing in a standard measure already mentioned. There is no time without a soul. For time arises where countable motion is actually counted, and only a soul, by means of the perceptive intellect, can count. But what is counting? We must cast loose completely from latter-day notions that counting is some sort of articulation of an inner stream of consciousness, an internal time flux. That notion comes from Kant. The soul for Aristotle has no original psychic time because it has, it has no one continuous underlying motion, nor does thought touch on an infinite series as it counts. Thought is not continuous. I quote, the motion of reason is not a continuum and in an underlying matter as is that of a moving thing. When the soul thinks, Time, when the soul thinks time, it does not actually run through all its continuum, but takes its sections individually and its successive thoughts discreetly, like numbers. The continuity of time comes entirely from the outside, the heavenly local motion with, with which the intermittent psychic motion has only this in common, that it too is before time, achronic, non-temporal, not only because it is discontinuous, but without infinite reg but without infinite regress, how will the soul count its own counting? That is, if time involves counting, then the soul has to count its own counting if it were itself in time. Without the now, then, there is no time, and no time without a now. But as we have seen, the now is not a part of time. Indeed, its mode of being is quite different from that of time, which is to say it belongs to a different category in Aristotle's terms. 
Time belongs to the category, as he says, of how great or quantity. The now belongs to the category of when, along with terms like yesterday and tomorrow. Except for an isolated chapter on the usage of such words concerned with when, nothing is said of this latter category either in the physics or in the categories. This most significant disjunction of time and now, which is so strange to us, follows from Aristotle's problematic theory of the role duration plays in perception and perceptible being. The human perceptive intellect comes in contact with a continuously moving physical world always at a here and a now. And while the, while the here may stay put, the now passes on along with the motion, somehow giving rise to the perception of time. But the now has another function besides the working of time. Each present now forms an impenetrable limit between all the nows that have passed and all the nows that are to come. Therefore, there is a past, or rather, we humans have a past. The inanimate physical world has no past or future, although it has a before and after, which simply means that it is in one or the other phase of its approach to being. Nor has God a past. Only human beings have a past, and only human beings have a future. How then is it possible for us to have a past? Aristotle deals with this most human of all temporal aspects, that concerning the triple character of the category when, that is, now, yesterday, tomorrow, in a brilliant little essay called On Memory and Recollection. It is the imagination which makes the two non-present phases of time possible. There is a past because there is memory and memory is a mode of the imagination. There is a kind of motion in the soul resulting from the activity of perception by which we have images. No human being, being as a composite of matter of form and form, can think without images. For example, no human being can do geometry without diagrams. For the image is an accommodation of material objects to the thinking soul, a holding of their form and their continuity without their matter, which the human intellect needs to go to work. Memory and imagination, then, both belong to the same part of the soul, that primary organ, as Aristotle calls it, of perception, which receives deliverances incidental and common to all the senses, namely magnitude, motion, consequently time. Memory is the affection of this power when time has gone by, a kind of perception perpetuated past its cause. All things imaginable can be remembered. Aristotle supplies a somewhat reve a revealingly obscure explanation of how long times are gauged. He says that just as one estimates a great external object not by actually reaching for it, but by representing it in a proportionate figure in the field of the imagination, so one does not actually go back a long time to estimate the age of a memory image, but one represents it proportionately in a short motion. One can run through a decade in a second. It, as I've said, a great difficulty in Aristotle's account is his insistence that duration itself can be perceived and imaged. And I don't think that his uh, explanation is really understandable. But aside from that difficulty, the chief absence in Aristotle's fun founding account is a total lack of any sense of the human weightiness of our triple temporality, particularly of a sense of the importance of the future, 
that it might, for instance, be in some sense real. The reason for this omission is that not time, but timeless actuality is life itself for Aristotle. And it is plainly expressed in this passage from the Nicomachean Ethics, which may serve as an epigraph for the exposition. He says, sweet is the activity of the present, the hope of what is to come, the memory of what has been. But what is truly sweet and truly to be loved in these is their being in the way of actuality. The vulnerable places in this magnificently detailed and dovetailed theory of time, which can be culled from Aristotle's various works, are patent. They occur at its inner and outer limits. The continuous uncreated celestial motion, which I think we can no longer accept, and the perpetual now, which remains an enigma. Happily, the central thesis, namely the reduction of time to an affection of motion, is not inextricably bound into Aristotle's terms, as it seems to me. Augustine. Time is the distension of the soul. Time and the soul's temporality is transfigured in a created world, as opposed to Aristotle's uncreated and eternal world. In the Confessions, Augustine burns with curiosity, expressed in lucidly ardent language, to know how the temporal human creature can reach beyond creation to the creator, and how it can find God's will which came before the world. Aristotle begin, uh, uh, Augustine begins by throwing out an impetuous uh, barrage of time quandaries and reflections. What is time? How can there be a past when what is gone is now not, and what will be is not yet? And yet, did the present not pass, it would be eternity. Again, how can I say that is, whose cause of being is that it shall be? And how can I measure times when those gone by are no longer and those to come are not yet there? If I do it, it must be while it is passing. But then, what of the three times? How can I contain them, that is, past, present, and future? Whatever the direction of approach, Augustine is sure of this, and here begins his wonderful resolution, that past, present, and future, wherever they are to be found, are only as present. They are not, properly speaking, three times, called past, present, and future. Rather, one should say, there is a present of what is past, a present of what is present and the present of the future. And he says, I quote, such three are indeed on our soul, and elsewhere I do not see them. The present of what has gone by its memory, the present of what is present by eyewitness, and the present of what is future by expectation. Augustine is not describing an Aristotelian faculty for sensing, for reviving images with their accrued times and for projecting them and plans. He is speaking of time itself and placing it within the human soul. New, he exclaims, is the discovery of these things. The discovery that he has made is this. He's, as he puts it, in you, my mind, do I measure my times. Times can be measured in the mind because they are co-present there and therefore comparable. Thus is resolved the great puzzle of primary time measurement, which is that unlike a length of space whose rigid measure can be transported intact 
and made congruent with another thing. Times and their measures flow away and are incapable of superimposition. Times do coins exist in the soul. Aristotle, Augustine thinks. The soul's collection of time proceeds, I infer, as follows. Worldly motion passes, as it were, under the attentively apprehending soul. The soul perceives each moment as it goes past and absorbs it into its own temporal dimension, its memory. Thus every moment remains fixed in its context, but sinks ever further down as new moments of motion are perceived. As the soul remembers, and at the same juncture of the world's motion and the soul's present, so it also expects, except that whereas present moments drop, as it were, into the memory, future moments drop out of the dimension of expectation into the world. I have referred to this co-temporaneity of the time, times as the dimension of the soul. Here is how, is how Augustine puts it. It seems to me that time is nothing else but a stretching out in length. His word is distensio, distension. But of what I know not, and I marvel if it be not of the very mind. Note that time is not in the mind, but it is the mind, or rather it is the dimension of the mind. The soul is the space of time. This distinction can be visualized as a kind of vertical elongation, an ordinate in a diagram, which represents the worldly dimension of the created soul, that is, its capacity for the world's motion coming toward the soul's mo moment of eyewitness from the future. That moment is the origin, the perceptual present, where the soul's distension intersects or sits astride the world's motion and turns its sensation event into memories. These memories continually drop down, preserving the order of entry into the memory segment of the soul's dimension, falling deeper with every passing moment. At the same juncture, expectation or foreknowledge is drawn down from the upper segment to meet the real moment, to become realized in a perceptual present. The whole ordinate, the expectation that memory segment joined in the point of perception, constitutes the soul triple present. This mental diagram expresses the two significant element of Augustine's temporality. First, since time is the soul's vertical dimension, the world's horizontal axis is timeless. That is, if we think of the soul as being a kind of vertical dimension and the, and the world as being horizontal, then that is a timeless axis. That is to say there is no worldly time. It is indeed implicit in Augustine's understanding that the external creation has events, but not temporal succession. It is the world as God sees it, all at once, in a so-called standing now, which becomes fluid only for a finite creature. The second aspect of Augustine's temporality is the real character of the future. The real futurity of the projections and previsions of the expectation segment. That is, there are prophecies, God-given visions of what is to be, and they meet their own realization in the world when the moment of their juncture with it arrives. Here then is the discovery of the human soul as being in its very being temporal stretched out over time, a discovery which has had the greatest imaginable effect on the philosophers of our day, particularly, of course, on Heidegger. Finally, Kant, time as inner sense. 
The first and all-determining discovery presents in the critique of pure reason is a veritably revolutionary understanding of what, mean, what it means to sense. Recall that Aristotle says that time is sensed. Now Kant claims that time is not sensed, but is the form of sense. That means that the sensibility, our receptive power, is also a formative faculty. And the first form it gives sensation is the temporal form. All sensation has the form of time. What is behind this claim? The immediate purpose of the critique of pure reason is the grounding, that is to say, the justification of the knowledge of nature, particularly of the new science of motion, Newtonian physics. Kant considers that knowledge can only be certain if its object, the world of nature, is itself shaped by the knower. Therefore, not only its conceptual side, but also the invariable components of its sensory aspects, space and time, must proceed from the north. Accordingly, Kant assigns to him an original formative receptivity. On the face of it, that is a contradiction in terms, but it's a necessary one. This formative receptivity, this sensibility, is Janus-faced, two-faced. One face is turned, toward, is turned outward and shapes sense material spatially. The other looks inward and informs what it receives temporally. The sensibility then is dual. It has an inner and an outer sense. This outer sense receives material in the mode of outsideness, namely a spatially extensive. The outer sense is the reason why external sensations always assume for us the form of space. The inner sense, on the other hand, is turned toward our innermost part, the very subject of all our representations, ourself. The word subject means it comes the same as self, namely that before which and to which things come. The inner sense receives the self as a given, namely as it gives itself to its own intuition. Within the inner sense, the subject itself becomes an appearance, for whatever the sensibility forms is called a an appearance. The inner sense is called time. Not time is an inner sense, but the other way around, the inner sense and the self that appears within it are temporal. In presenting inner sense, Kant is therefore not saying what time is, but only why it is the inevitable form of every, uh, which every appearance takes. Nevertheless, a new understanding of the nature of time will come out of Kant's discovery, one aspect of which has already emerged. Contrary to Aristotle, time is not an affection of motion, but motion itself will be possible only under the form of inner sense. Indeed, it is only under the form of temporality that motion is even conceivable for Kant, since it is a succession in the succession of time alone that the law of contradiction can be fluidified so that opposite predicates can belong to the same object, and that is Kant's definition of motion. Why is the inner sense given the name of time? And what does it mean to say that the self appears within it? All conceiving is steadfastly accompanied by a prefix, I think, a kind of pervasive prefix to all our thinking, which is, however, purely, purely formal in the, in the sense that it adds nothing to what I think. <coughs> Furthermore, this prefix tells me at most that I am, but never what I am. The self cannot be known to itself because it's strictly formal. 
It is nothing but the source of rule-giving thinking functions, which cannot by their very character become objects of thought themselves. They are merely functions of thinking and cannot themselves be the objects of thinking. These conceiving functions, and the word is to be taken statically as in a function in mathematics, collectively are called the understanding, which is therefore the self as it is diversified into certain definite, innumerable functions or categories. Each of these accomplishes certain proper syntheses or unifications. Besides these operations, they are nothing and mean nothing. That is, our thinking itself has no meaning and no substance. Kant claims that when the pure content of innocence is determined by thinking, the resulting appearance is that of the thinking object itself. He takes the word appearance seriously. Only that which is not itself on the scene can have appearances. So therefore the thinking subject, that is to say the self, cannot know itself since it is not an object properly speaking. Nonetheless, it can appear to itself, namely in the inner sense. And since every appearance is for a subject, the self appears to itself. Not the self knows itself, but it appears to itself. The first example of self-appearance is the act of attention, in which thinking, having determined the inner sense according to the laws of connection, appears as a succession of moments. That is to say, as when we find ourselves in the process of thinking. The self, then, which is by itself the inaccessible rational source, can determine another part of itself, of the soul, and if it cannot know itself, it can at least know its appearances. The work of the inner sense is therefore on the face of it to ground the temporal dimension of physics. That is, on the face of it, that was the reason for the discovery of this new inner new sensibility, the inner sense. But its deeper role is that of the capacity for self-appearance or self-awareness. The reason why this sense, or rather its content, is identified with time is now somewhat clearer. It is the steady underlying flow which we come to in self-inspection and which our thinking structures and organizes. Therefore, Kant can say, time does not pass away, but in it passes the existence of what is changeable. Time itself is unchangeable and permanent, for it is the original flux content of the inner self itself. The configurations into which thinking shapes this inner sense, this time sense, are the work of that most central power which Kant calls an art hidden in the depth of the human soul, namely the imagination. For Aristotle, the activity of the imagination, which was identical with that of the primary sense, is not hidden in the depth at all. It is in fact on the interface of soul and body and has a physical base. Kant rightly considers his discovery of the original contribution of the imagination quite new. For him, thinking and sensing are too heterogeneous to come together without some intermediate agency. It is the imagination which is the meeting ground of the two. So the imagination makes time thinkable or conscious, but much more importantly, it does the inverse. It makes thought temporal. The pure flux of inner sense, which presumably we can experience by concentrating on our own thinking process, can now be seen in the light of a deep, though inexplicit need and system. The temporal sense, the inner sense, is needed to float thought, so to speak. It gives thinking a spurious kind of motion, a pseudo-actuality. 
in themselves, as I mentioned, the thinking functions are merely empty, static forms. Cast on the stream of inner sense, they assume a kind of fluidity. Time and Kant is the animating principle of that thinking which has no end in itself and is not an object to itself. And Kantian temporality is the substitute for the lost life of Aristotelian intellect. These then are the three fundamental philosophical understandings of time. For Aristotle, time is nothing but the measure of innerworldly motion. For Augustine, it is the dimensionality of the soul itself in which the now is co-present with past and future. For Kant, finally, it is the inner sense, a flux form which not only orders sensation, but vivifies the structures of thought. Next week, taking all this into account, I shall set out some of my own reflections on the nature of time, or rather, on its non-nature, and on the human consequences. Thank you.